Welcome to the official Ronnie Landis podcast show, where you learn to upgrade the human experience through natural nutrition, lifestyle design, and consciousness engineering. This is no ordinary health or personal growth podcast, and Ronnie Landis is definitely no ordinary host. Ronnie Landis is an integrative nutritionist, transformation coach, and human behavioral specialist. He brings on some of the world's leading thought leaders to deliver to you the most cutting-edge information and unique perspectives so you can create the life of your dreams. Get ready to receive your upgrade in all you believed was possible, starting now. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the official Ronnie Landis podcast show. I am, of course, your host, Ronnie Landis. Before we dive into today's epic, incredible, mind-altering, mind-expanding interview with our guest, Daniel Schmockenberger, I want to drive a little bit of your attention to one of my favorite cognitive-enhancing, brain-boosting, neuroprotective products that I've ever come across. We sometimes call these products nootropics, which are defined by either helping increase vasodilation, which is blood flow to the brain, or increasing nerve growth factors, which have implications in increasing white matter or glial cell production in the brain, which we're coming to find out is actually most of what makes a healthy brain and what helps create that neurological syndication of communication networks in the brain via what are called glial cells and microglial cells and nerve growth factors, which have to do with the myelination of our nerves, of our our nervous system and uh, memory, short-term, long-term memory, all that kind of cool stuff that you can nerd out on for hours on end like I do. There is an incredible product that I started playing with um, about about a month and a half ago, and this product is called Qualia. And I have to say, Qualia has been qualified, in my opinion, as the best nootropic product I have ever experimented with in my life. Literally, the first time I tried it, it immediately balanced my mental-emotional coherence. I felt throughout the day more emotional um, uh, resilience. I felt more mental clarity, more mental endurance. Like I could go through my entire day with a level of cognitive, um, uh, what's the word? Not just, not just, um, almost like clairvoyance is an interesting word that's coming to mind, but it's just clarity and, and mental endurance where I didn't run out of mental bandwidth. I could process things quicker and make those those synaptic connections much quicker. Sometimes we call that synaptogenesis. That's another interesting term that you can geek out on as well. And um, I'm not making any claims about it, but given my experience and the experience of so many people that I have talked to about this product, it is by far the best thing I've ever come across. It is my favorite supplement by far. The product is called Qualia and it's by a company called Neurohacker. And I will invite you to go to neurohacker.com, look at the research behind the product, look and kind of investigate it a little bit. And if it resonates with you and you want to experiment with it, you can actually use the coupon code human potential, which is my coupon code, human potential, and you will receive 10% off your first order. 
And you, I believe, will be very um, shockingly surprised at the positive effects, not only in the short term, but the long term enduring positive effects that take place um, from this product. That's my experience. That's been the experience of many, many other people. And I invite you to have an experience as well. So let's move on with the interview Speaking of Neurohacker, the founder of Neurohacker Collective, Daniel Schmockenberger, is our guest today. And I have to say, Daniel is one of the most impressive polymaths that I have come across. Polymath is a term to describe somebody that has achieved multidisciplinary mastery, meaning a level of mastery in a multitude of disciplines. And uh, Daniel's just a really fun guy to talk to. He's a very humble, grounded, down-to-earth, and very um, brilliant human being, to say the least. And you'll, you'll get that sense when you're listening to this conversation. This conversation goes in a plethora of directions. And um, it would almost be a disservice to even try to explain this interview, just in a, a quick little snippet. What I will say is that don't try to absorb everything right away. The way that Daniel's mind works is like in a holographic nature. That's why that's why I felt that we could really have an incredible conversation together because my brain tends to work holographically, meaning that I can see multiple subjects or multiple things in a constellation, almost holographically projected in front of me. And I know a lot of you listening to this have relayed similar experiences, which is probably why a lot of you feel called towards my speaking style and feel called towards the guests that I bring on, because I only bring on people that I am impressed by, that I support their work, and that I actually genuinely want to have a conversation with. Otherwise, I'm not going to bring them on. I'm not going to waste their time, my time, or your time. And man, was this... Was this um, just an incredible download and transmission? Wow. I'm actually going to refrain from trying to describe this interview in any more detail. I really just want to invite you to have your own experience and kind of get the downloads and insights that come to you. So without further ado, that's it from me. Let's bring on uh, Daniel Schmockenberger and enjoy this conversation immensely. Daniel is the director of research and development and a co-founder at Neurohacker Collective, where he is focused on developing processes and technologies for advancing medicine and human optimization. He is particularly focused on personalized medicine, adequate approaches to complex illness, and deepening our knowledge of how the human regulatory systems function, how they break down, and how they can be supported to function with greater resilience. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Ron. Good to be here. Yeah, it's. Uh, I feel like it's been a long time coming, even though you and me just started really connecting um, more personally as of recently. You've been on my radar for quite some time within the collective community that we come from in uh, northern San Diego. Um, however, the more I go down the rabbit hole, as these things tend to 
tend to happen, the more people around the country, around the, the even around the planet now know of you, know of your work, know of your products, um, Qualia, which has just kind of accumulated on my radar until I finally started playing with it, which I have to say, um, and I know we'll dive more into that product and the work that you're doing with Neurohacker Collective, but I have to just say as we start out here, that is my single favorite uh, cognitive enhancement product that I've ever tried. And um, yeah, I'm looking forward to diving into that as well as all the other interesting territory that we're going to cover today. Sounds fun. Cool. So the first place that I'd love to start is the origin story, which... I've I've dug into a little bit of yours just from certain certain podcasts that you've given and I have to say that you have a very unique and novel upbringing comparatively to, you know, most people's upbringing I would imagine. And so maybe you could just share some of your back, your background and the upbringing you had. Uh sure. So the novel upbringing uh I'm imagine you mean I was uh I was homeschooled growing up, and I was homeschooled by uh, really thoughtful parents who uh, had ideas about educational philosophy and how uh, child rearing and human actualization could work and wanted to experiment on their kids, which was cool. And so our homeschool was set up uh, with no curriculum at all, no fixed curriculum. So we did no social studies, math, English, etc. That were uh, curriculum based. The idea instead, which has become more popular recently with uh, things like unschooling, um, the approach that we had was still a little different. It was to expose us to as much as possible to see what we were interested in and then facilitate those interests as fully as possible. And so, uh, topics that I didn't express interest in, I never really learned. And so, Mm. I I didn't learn much about American history as a child because it wasn't an area where my interest just naturally peaked. And I never learned state capitals and et cetera. My, I didn't learn much in the way of spelling. My handwriting never got legible. Um, but I did go deep in uh, most of the sciences very early and in most of the philosophic traditions and in many areas of activism. And that was kind of the braid uh, that all my interests fit into. And the the kind of uh, educational philosophy idea was that kids are intrinsically interested, curious, that there was evolutionary benefit to being curious, to being fascinated, and that if we facilitate their fascination, not only do they become uh, masterful at things because they put a lot of cycles of earnest attention and energy because they're intrinsically motivated, but uh, their interest in life continues to develop, passion in life continues to develop, that when you don't facilitate kids' interests and you try to force them to do shit that they're not interested in, that's how you can break people's interests in life and they just want to veg out and watch TV. Mm-hmm. And um, <clears throat> so that ended up being true uh, in my case. And um, one of the things that was real interesting was since I didn't have specific subjects, there was no division between biology, chemistry, physics, philosophy. So it was an inquiry into the nature of something and asking why that is enough times usually led, you know, a trip around the universe, asking questions about why plants grew that led to 
soil biology that led to microbiology that led to understanding what the minerals were and how they were formed in supernovas and that meant uh you know astrophysics and cosmology got into uh relativity and modern physics and you know etc so uh that led to not only kind of a study across a lot of areas but the relationship between those areas so interdisciplinary science but more than that system science and the deeper philosophy of why does universe work the way that it does across all of those different domains, which is where the underpinning was really in uh, philosophic systems. So that was a little bit about the background. And, uh, you know, my dad was largely uh, interested in science and philosophy. So I got a lot of support there. My mom was interested in the arts and the humanities and in activism. And so as far as exposure goes, she took me to work with Greenpeace and PETA and Amnesty International and, you know, those kinds of things early. And so uh, the impulse was from earliest on, I can remember, and I, I see this impulse in all the kids that I interact with and it'll express in totally unique ways. And my, and my brother expressed very differently, but, uh, but the impulse was the same was to understand the nature of the reality we live in, mm. to understand what is ultimately meaningful <clears throat> and to see how, we can uniquely contribute to it in the way that is, uh, you know, most meaningful to, for us. So that's a little bit about the childhood part. And who are some of your mentors that you paid attention to during your upbringing? And as your curiosity and fascination on all these different subject matter grew who are some of the people that come that's that kind of come to your mind immediately that played a big role in your your kind of fascination mm -hmm. well there were people that i actually physically met who were mentors uh, but early on the kind of deepest influences were just the uh the philosopher scientists teachers that uh, i was fascinated by and that uh, got to be the the basis of my curriculum so the first name that comes to mind as being the probably the most significant early intellectual influence for me was uh, Buckminster Fuller. Mm. And as one of my dad's great heroes, uh, Bucky's work was my probably most common early bedtime story as a kid, even, <laughs> even before I was verbal. And one of the things is it's like as hard as it might seem for us as adults to learn a new language and especially a very different language, say Mandarin, uh, baby who grows up hearing it learns it no problem. Well, in the same way, if we grow up hearing the kinds of words that are in mm -hmm. children's books, we'll learn those. If we grow up hearing different kinds of words, we'll learn those just as easily. Um, and so, uh, you know, my early words had a lot to do with synergetic geometry and tensegrity and cause that's what I was exposed to. And, um, so Buckminster Fuller and, uh, design science, uh, and specifically looking at how to design technology that is both modeled after how nature works and that intentionally works uh, in, in alignment with complex adaptive systems, core part of my early childhood development. And then a lot of the systems thinkers, advanced and popularized systems thinking, so Fritjof Capra, Irvin Laszlo, uh, the people who developed uh, autopoiesis theory, self-organization, complex adaptive systems, Stuart Kaufman, all those kind of guys. Uh, you know, obviously the, the bit of TV that came in was uh, Cosmos and Carl Sagan. And, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
that. And, um, you know, and the Eastern traditions were very deep for me. So I got to live in the, in, uh, Fairfield, Iowa, in the transcendental meditation community for, uh, the first six years of life. And so, uh, Maharishi Maheshogi, the kind of, uh, one of the people that brought Eastern philosophy to the West, he was a meaningful early influence and that then led to lots of Eastern philosophers. Um, Western philosophy came a little bit after that. Um, and then, you know, the great activists, Gandhi was a very deep and profound early influence. Um, there are many, many examples, but, uh, I was, I was fortunate to have examples of great role models. Mm. Yeah, I really, and I really appreciate what you're sharing about the natural curiosity and fascination that children have with learning. And one of the things that I really feel like I've been a voice for just in the subtle realms of my work, maybe when I go off on tangents or something, or I'm working with parents in particular, I tend to really focus in on a child's innate, well, not even just children, but people's innate tendencies. What are they naturally gravitating towards? And if they are given, I guess, I don't know, the permission slip or they're given encouragement to pursue those things, their intrinsic genius starts to kind of come about where, you know, for example, our our industrial education system doesn't foster that type of environment, right? It's, it's just kind of rinse, repeat, memorize, um, and, you know, focus on the end result being a grade on your paper. And so I feel as though this conversation is really important. And just for, just to maybe plant a seed in people's mind that, that whatever, whatever we're naturally curious about is, is leading us towards our intrinsic genius. Does that, does that sound about right to you? Yeah, so to to just kind of um, piggyback on that a little bit. So the extension beyond childhood and homeschool for me was when I uh, started college. And again, I was well facilitated, so I was fortunate to get to uh, start college and university young. Um, I had no intention of getting degrees, and I had no idea what I planned on doing with any of the knowledge in a kind of vocation sense. I knew I was interested in understanding reality and being empowered by that to uh, help shape civilization. But I didn't know what that looked like yet. I didn't know enough. So I got into mathematics and it was just, I was just passionate about understanding uh, how these maximally abstracted principles of order and relationship work. And so I just dove into mathematics and, um, you know, had all math classes at the same time and, my, you know, my parents did ask you, so do you want to be a mathematician? And I, I just, I wasn't thinking that way at all. I was thinking that there was deep innate fascination for me in understanding this. And at a certain point, uh, I by no means understood all that one could understand in mathematics, which isn't even possible. But, uh, but I got to a place where I understood math well enough that what the impulse that was driving me there had found a certain kind of completion. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't actually just to work in math. It was to understand how to think through induction and deduction and formal logic and abstraction and, uh, you know, et cetera, to understand the language that the sciences operated in. And as soon as that happened, my attention moved. My fascination was in 
uh, physics. And then all of my attention was just kind of deep diving. And then it moved to uh, Vedantic philosophy, it moved to medicine, it moved to ecology. And um, some people could think that that was lack of focus. And it was so clearly not to me. It was, it was following a kind of natural process that I wasn't crystal clear on. I knew was trending towards accumulating the skills and capacities and insights necessary to do what was going to be mine to do, even though I didn't know exactly what that was. But pretty much as soon as an area would reach a completion of what I needed to do with it, then my attention moved to the next thing until there was an adequate body of capacities that I could actually put together what was really mine to do, which had to do with whole systems design at the level of civilization. How do we uh, fundamentally redesign the core axioms of civilization? What does the future of macroeconomics post-capitalism look like that has uh, incentives that don't externalize harm? What is the future of governance that has adequate decision-making capacity to the scope of decisions that we have to make in the future look like? What does the future of infrastructure look like? My focus was the whole system civilization design. And even though I intuited that, I couldn't have said that, but it actually needed the skills of all of those things that I worked in. So there was a deeper than conscious process guiding that. That was pretty much what my fascination was. And so being allowed to follow that was a gift that I uh, wish for everyone. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Very well explained. And that's exactly what I wish for everyone too. And it's funny what you mentioned about kind of the hopscotching model of, of self interest based education, because when I look back on my life, it's very much the same thing. I was raised as a martial artist, which caused me to be intimately exposed to Eastern philosophy and and many different modalities in that world. And then eventually, you know, the last, I would say, eight or nine years, I've been more interested in science. And then learning the language of science or different formats of science, um, for example, where growing up, that wasn't something that I was interested in. So in, I naturally didn't have a proclivity towards it. So therefore, I didn't apply myself. And teachers probably assumed that um, I don't think I was ever assumed like, quote unquote, dumb. I was just like maybe I was assumed just really bored or like all I wanted to do was go on a track and field and run or, or work out or something. Um, however, I do realize, though, as I got older, the link between this subject matter being different forms of science and um, uh, things that I previously was not interested in, the link between that and my purpose now had been created, therefore, you know, that now there's more of a natural proclivity to apply myself because now I see how that matches up with what I believe that I'm here to do on the earth. So I think that's really fascinating. Um, and I want to use this as a segue. I really love what you're sharing. I want to use this as a segue to go into some of the principles that you share in some of your talks to further expand upon um, just kind of what, what your philosophy or the philosophy that I think you're working from is about. So um, maybe we can give the audience a basic foundational understanding on your perspectives around the principles of emergence and omni-consideration. <laughs> sure. Uh, great topics. So omni-consideration is... Uh, as 
inclusive a word as I can think of for uh, if we have to kind of bring it to a, a single word core value or guiding principle, omni-consideration is the, is the closest that I could get, which is how do we think about everything that is affected and impacted by an, any decision and how do we care? So how do we care about it and then think through the actual causation well and factor the well-being of everything that is affected in every choice made? And so, you know, why would that even be relevant? Well, it's relevant when we recognize the first step of relevance is when we recognize that we live in an interconnected universe, that on our biosphere, we live in a very interconnected biosphere, that our technology is big enough that we're affecting things across the whole biosphere in real time. We're making purchases that are affecting supply chains on, you know, most of the continents. Um, and that there, there really is no such thing as a way wherever our trash goes. There really is no such thing as others where however their quality of life is being affected, that's leading to their patterns of behavior, is leading to how they're affecting the oceans, the ecosystems that, are, that we're all fundamentally uh, interconnected with. And so pre-industrial revolution, when there was less than a half a billion people and we didn't have much technology um, – there's a different set of rules in that evolutionary environment for it was possible to have win-lose games. It wasn't a good idea, but it was possible, and we did that. So resource issues, one tribe could kill another tribe to have access to the resource, and you know that, that could work. When you get to the level of technology where we're at now, where you know it, it went from we have conflict, and uh, if we can't figure it out, we'll kill each other, and we're using stones, and then we're using spears, then we're using bow and arrows, and we're using guns, and we're using missiles. As soon as we're dealing with uh, you know, nuclear weapons, weapons of mass destruction, our, our weapons are actually bigger than the playing field can manage, and the wars are not winnable. When we're cutting down trees unrenewably, but there's just not that many of us when cutting them down with an axe, it's one thing. When we're slashing, burning an acre a second, it's a different thing, right? And so we've got the resource per capita utilization we have now times 7 billion people, the same way of let's, you know, win at the expense of the environment or win at the expense of each other. Well, at the expense of the environment means now the life support systems of the planet can't continue to support us and we don't exist. And at the expense of each other means unwinnable wars. We've basically got a level of power that has obsoleted win-lose games being possible. Anymore, They're not even possible. So now we can continue to try and have lose-lose games or we have to switch to fundamentally win-win games, which are not zero-sum, which are fundamentally positive-sum. And there's a, just a totally different uh, set of behavioral mechanics, set of thought processes, set of dynamics. So omni-considerate, you know, part of the driver is we actually don't continue as a species without moving into omni-consideration because if we don't contemplate the welfare of the ocean, so we continue to do agriculture in a way that has nitrogen runoff leads to growing dead zones in the oceans and continue to do carbon emissions in a way that leads to ocean acidification and warming kills the coral, we don't keep existing. Right? If we continue to do fishing in a way that overfishes uh, you know, the, the, the populations. And so this is a key concept is – we are used to in modern times and the West specifically thinking of ourselves as individuals. Mm-hmm. And so I can think of me as if that's 
a separatable concept and that I can think about my own success uh, separate from the success of everything else. Well, it's important to get that that's actually a nonsense concept. It seems like it's a meaningful concept, but the only reason that I can think about me at all is because there's a biosphere that allows me to exist. Mm -hmm. And I just have to take that for granted and say, well, of course, there's a biosphere. Let's talk about me. But if there's no biosphere, there's no me, right? So without oxygen, I don't mean much. Without the plants that make the oxygen, I don't mean much. Without the soil microbes that make the plants possible, make the oxygen. Without all of the people that have come before me that have created the technology that I utilize, that have created the language that creates the linguistic structure of thought through which I think and perceive the world, the me that I think of as me wouldn't exist at all. And so I get I'm actually not separatable from all of that. I'm not an individual. I'm an emergent property of the whole. And as soon as I get that I am – I as an individual is actually just a bad thought. It is a misnomer. Right? It's not understanding the dynamics well. Then the idea of separate interest just becomes nonsense because if I don't exist without plants, me damaging plants to advantage my existence just doesn't make that much sense, right? And especially as we get to the point where we've damaged plants enough that we are close to tipping points of it not just being a bad idea but it being an existential idea. Um, and so omni-consideration omni is actually requisite for our continued survival as a species. This is, this is a big deal. It, you know, we think of – Jesus or Buddha-like characters that we would say kind of had this omni-consideration of caring for the welfare of all sentient beings. Yeah. Um, but they were extreme outliers. As we move to the place where exponential technology is increasing the impact that all humans can have, and it's increasing it exponentially, how can we continue to have exponentially more impact without having exponentially better choice-making and continue to make it? Or we don't. And so we, we are our choice making being omnipositive, which would be the result of it being omniconsiderate, right? Mm -hmm. Thinking it omniconsiderate process could lead to omnipositive results in a world that is this uh, interconnected and with this much scope of impact, that is actually the only way to continue making it. So this, this is a big deal because what we're saying is in the face of in the face of population and in the face of more specifically exponential technology, it's as if you know we can use the metaphor of that we are merging into having the power of gods. Well, if you have the power of gods, you better have the wisdom and yes. the love and the discernment of gods or you self-destruct. Yes. And so exponential technology necessitates that omniconsiderate – humans become the new normal in the next very short period of time. Mm. That's like that's like human beings 3.0. That's like the the next logical and necessary upgrade to the humanoid template which we currently are are experiencing. However, whatever your perspective is spiritually, whether we're just souls carting around in this, in this this meat suit or this avatar-like vessel or whatever the particular perspective is, the reality is that we need to go through some sort of quantum leap evolutionary process within this generation, um, which is and, and maybe it's just a consciousness upgrade that that ripples throughout the whole system. Um, which is this omni-consideration model versus 
this self-consideration, this, this um, self-centric model in which, in which I think we've largely been conditioned with, right? Because when somebody, you know, as a biological symbiotic kind of organism, um, the, 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 uh, what's the word I'm trying to find? It's the program or the tendency is cooperation, right? It's not competition. It's not survival of the fittest. It's adaptability and cooperation. So naturally we want to work together. Naturally we want, we want the best welfare for all, for, for everyone and all creatures. However, it just seems to me that we have been culturally conditioned to focus on ourselves because of the illusion or maybe not so much the illusion in some cases of scarcity. So let's, let's think about the narrative of how we got here. And I'm going to radically oversimplify it to just share one of the causal through lines. So Say we go to uh, shortly after the plow and agriculture and early civilizations, and they they differentiated in different ways, as we would see people do, and you know cultures do today. We'd expect, and for whatever reasons, environmental reasons, and etc., you had some cultures that were um, more focused on the arts and the humanities and spiritual traditions, and less focused on. Um, militaries and expanding their territory and you had other ones that were focused on the other side of that and we can imagine it was a natural gradient of those possibilities for a number of reasons and so we see uh history of uh you know we see archaeology of matrifocal uh, matriarchal societies that had less violence that were more peace-loving as a result they invested less in their militaries and more in their arts and then whenever a militarized culture met a more peaceful culture. They killed the peaceful culture and took their stuff and became, and then applied their stuff to their increased militarized capacity and continued on. And then when a couple violent militarized cultures met, the more successful one on a battlefield won and again assimilated the stuff of the other ones and continued. And so there was a natural selection that occurred, but it was a natural selection of dominance capacity one in war and one in economic competition. And again, economic competition ended up meaning uh, how quickly we could extract resources from the ecosystem regardless of how whether they were regenerating or not. And so we'd have more economic capacity if we could pull uh, grains out, even if it was diver- diverse <clears throat> desertifying soil, or if we could pull out coal or oil, depending upon the time period we were at. And so... What that means is because nature didn't have a balance sheet, the better that we raped the environment and externalized harm to it, the more industrious we were. And so the better that we uh, competed in the uh, free market and the better we competed at war, the better we did in that way. So there was this kind of natural selection of effective cooperation of an in-group in its competition with all out-group, which meant its effective dominance capacity. Mm -hmm. And so – we can see how we got here that way, but that wasn't a conscious selection of what is actually going to be enduringly sustainable and viable or that was true, good, and beautiful into the future. It was a unconscious selection of what had dominance capacity now. Mm-hmm. And uh, as we continue where our ability to extract resources from the environment has hit tipping points of moving past peak resource on a bunch of key resources, 
we can't continue with that success strategy. We're almost out of the ability to do that with many areas, which means you've got an exponential curve up and then you hit a cliff and then it drops off. Um, you know, we went from half a billion people for all of hominid history uh, before the Industrial Revolution and the Industrial Revolution's ability to extract resources from the earth much faster. We've gone to, you know, almost 7.2 billion people in the blink of an eye. And um, that population increase was not based on uh, renewable resource utilization, but extraction of planetary savings accounts that were not renewing. And so, again, you, when you hit the, the tipping point, then you get uh, extreme drop off. And we're right there. Or you get some fundamental civilization restructuring, which we can talk about. And so, you know, that has been the selection criteria. And what's interesting is we can't continue resource extraction or harm externalization to the environment like we've done. And we can't continue to win wars where our technological capacity and military is too big for any war to be winnable. And so what is how we've dealt with these things for all of civilization since agriculture till now is not a way we can continue to deal with it. So we're looking at a phase shift for civilization that is deeper than anything we have in, in all of recorded history. And uh, this is a big deal. Uh, this is a big deal for us to get. One of the things that's so interesting is that when we think about evolution as this kind of algorithmic process of what ends up being adaptive now in an environment, but that leads to increased orderly complexity, we get the orderly complexity of prefrontal cortices in humans and now with all the information we have where we actually have the capacity with abstraction to think about things like evolution itself mm. and where it's trending and have the capacity for omni-consideration where rather than just being parts of a big evolutionary dynamic, we can actually choose to participate with the evolution of the whole. We can become stewards of the evolution of the whole and not just focus on what's adaptive now but what is – a true and good and beautiful future that we're interested in creating. And I would say this is one way to think about the phase shift is a phase shift from unconscious algorithmic evolution of what's adapted now based on dominance to a conscious evolution mediated by conscious agents that factors a forecasted future of the true, the good and the beautiful for everyone, right? That's omni considerate and, sustainable, regenerative, et cetera. And so evolution itself is evolving to being a more consciously, agentically mediated process where we become stewards of evolution. I think this is a key way of thinking about the phase transition we're mm. right now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, um, what comes to mind is the, the famous book, The Holographic Universe. Did you ever read that book by Michael Talbot? Talbot? Yeah. What do you, what do you think about that idea? Because... Everything I hear, I kind of maybe it's because I have my own cognitive bias because I'm I'm redirecting certain concepts back into a holographic perspective. When I hear things like emergence, when I hear macro and micro, when I hear omni consideration, which to me translates into the fact that our thoughts, words, and deeds affect the whole. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, what what's your you know what's your perspective on that whole thing? There are patterns of self-similarity at all scales. Uh, holograms are one way of thinking about self-similarity, uh, and fractals are another way. Um, things like the constructal law are other ways of looking at 
you know, branching dynamics, whether it's a cardiovascular system or a river network or mm-hmm. a tree root network. Um, so we see patterns of kind of similar structures um, across scale and across areas because they have to do with deep structures and the nature of reality. So as far as this goes, we look at a holographic on the scale of what is in the highest good of a person and what's in the highest good of all people and what's in the highest good of all life. When you factor all the cause and effect feedback loops will always be the same thing. Yeah. It might seem like it's possible to benefit yourself at the expense of somebody else or at the expense of your future self. But that's only because you're not factoring some of the cause and effect feedback loops mm-hmm. of wherever you externalize harm. Actually, as you continue to follow where that harm goes, will come back to affect you. Mm-hmm. When you factor all of it, it's kind of like, you know, cancer cells start having their own agency, their own kind of process of growth and development be decoupled from their relationship with all the other cells around them. And the net result is if they're successful and they kill the body, then they die too. And so it actually doesn't end up being a net good deal for them, right? Mm -hmm. But it, it happened because they were damaged, right? Some radical oxidative damage occurred and so they lost some meaningful capacity for self regulation. And right now we can think about humans, uh, you know, at the level of nations, at the level of corporations, at the level of individual humans lacking some of the capacities necessary to regulate and make choices in a way that is good for them and the whole simultaneously. And the development of those capacities is key to what we need to be doing. Mm. So this is a good opportunity for me to switch into this lane, which is, um, well, I would just love actually just to dive into your personal views on vegetarianism and veganism as lifestyle models as our collective population moves more into a conscious awareness of sentience and moves away from a culture that seems to be so heavily invested in its own demise, how do you see things like vegetarianism and veganism as models fitting into that? Mm, Super important, deep, complex, difficult question. Yeah. Um, I want to say this because... I don't want to handle the topic without the nuance that it deserves. Mm. Uh, It's very easy to say um, vegetarianism and veganism is a comprehensively better way uh, because of the ethics of the, you know, how we relate to other sentient beings because of the environmental load and impact of uh, factory farming or in general converting plant biomatter to animal biomatter. There's a, you know, there's a, those arguments are easy to make, and I am compelled by all of them. I, I uh, saw a factory farm slaughter truck as a little kid, saw animals that were in gruesome conditions, was horrified by it, had always loved animals and loved meat without really realizing how those two fit together that well growing up like most people, and did a deep dive right then, read John Robbins' Diet for New America, got into PETA, and, and then, you know, vegetarianism and animal activism and, you know, became a deep part of my life focus. Um, that said, the critiques that, uh, you know, the book, The Vegetarian Myth, and the critiques that, um, uh, you know, the people in the paleo world and uh, et cetera will give, some of them are also meaningful and well-founded. And uh, so I, I want to address 
is it just about plant-based versus animal-based? Uh, no, of course not. The argument that if people are eating uh, sustainably grown, organic, mixed farm uh, animal protein compared to conventional agriculture that is you know, plant-based food that ha- is you know pouring glyphosate into the atmosphere and destroying uh, ecosystems for row crop, mm-hmm. then arguably the animal uh, agriculture is both more you know sustainable and actually maybe even kills less net animals than what it took to make that agricultural space. This is totally true. Is it uh, true that for some people being healthy is easier with certain animal products in their diet? This is definitely true. For many people, uh, being vegetarian is actually easier to be healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, but for some people, for various reasons, uh, whether it has to do with um, amino acids, fatty acids, uh, heme iron, uh, etc., some people actually have a much harder time being healthy on a vegetarian, especially vegan diet, especially if they don't know how well. And so then we deal with the ethics of their own kind of suffering. So I just want to say that I think the topic is really important and warrants uh, nuance in its handling. Uh, I think there are core axioms of the whole conversation that are about to change because I think um, manufactured meat, stem cell generated meat is going to be a game changing technology uh, where people who for um, health reasons that they feel that they need it or for taste reasons or for whatever want to eat uh, animal protein uh, would have the ability to do that without the environmental implications of traditional animal agriculture and without uh, the ethical implications of something that ever had a nervous system. Um, and where the uh, energy input per kilo of meat generated is actually profoundly low, obviously there's a lot of work to do to dial in the, the micronutrition of it. But the combination of that with better, uh, you know, aeroponics and other um, agriculture methods for plant matter, I think, is necessary to be able to feed all of the world's people renewably, healthily. Um, Whether someone ultimately at this point ends up choosing to include some animals in their diet, whether they say, okay, I'm cool with fish but not above, or I'm cool with, you know, even Peter Singer was in the conversation about should we be cool with oysters and clams and mussels, the vibe bivalve creatures because there's, you know, argument around, do they feel, do they feel pain? Um, does it happen? And how do we know? Does it do insects, you know, cricket flour, cricket flour, you can actually produce a whole lot of protein and with a small amount of energy, you know, per acre, which has a lot of environmental benefits, but do, do they feel pain? Do we know, is it, is it based on nerves? Is it based on opiate receptors? Is it based on movement dynamics? So I would say there are ethically deep questions here. And they are being explored and they should be explored. So whether people decide that they don't eat any animal products at all or they will eat non-kill animal products. So they'll eat kill things below the certain level of nervous system development they feel good with. And you ask questions like, well, what about fungus? Fungus isn't a plant or an animal. What about – you know? or they decide that they are comfortable with mammals so long as they hunt them or wherever they decide to be with it thinking through it and feeling through it deeply for their own ethical alignment is key. And um, I don't think anyone can think and feel through it deeply and decide that they 
feel good about the ethics of factory farms. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's possible. Um, and as far as the ethics goes, while there's a lot of nuance to it, I think the pie slice theorem is a really good place to start, right? Which is, in, <laughs> if we're if we're going to be uh, cutting something in half and sharing it, generally the rule of thumb goes: I cut it in half and you pick, or you cut it in half and I pick. But not I cut it in half and then I pick because then I'll I'll cut it unevenly and pick the big sub. Right. <laughs> um, so the question is: Would would I it, would I trade places? And a part of an ethical relationship is that both sides are benefited again a win-win dynamic that we'd be happy to trade places because we actually feel good about the experience of both sides of any interaction so we have to say when i think into the sentient experience of this animal and the way that i'm relating with them would i trade places and do i feel okay about my effect on their sentient experience and uh, we could do a whole podcast to go deeper, but I think asking that question earnestly is a starting point I'd encourage for everybody. Mm. Yeah, I, I really, <clears throat> I really appreciate that perspective. I was recently on a podcast where someone was asking me a very similar question, just my ethics around plant-based diets and vegan and vegetarianism. And as he was talking, two quotes came to mind that really encapsulated my general perspective. One of them was the Ahimsa quote from the, the, eight, yams, the eight Limbs of Yoga Philosophy, and which is basically do no harm to others and do no harm to ourself. And a lot of times that quote is actually taken out of context. It's just do no harm to others, but it also is followed up with do no harm to ourselves which I think is part of what you're sharing is that there's a there's a consideration for loving others, loving other creatures and loving ourselves enough to make sure that we are covering our bases, making sure that we cover our blind spots as a sustainable biological organism. So we're healthy and vibrant. Um and then the other quote that came up for me was by the the great alchemist Paracelsus who said that everything is poison Everything is panacea. It depends on dosage. Mm-hmm. So that quote came up for me because I said, you know, if someone chooses to consume meat and flesh products and animal products, that's their own. That's part of their own riddle. You know, nutrition is largely a riddle. So, you know, I, th- I feel like a lot of it really has to do with dosage. You know, in terms of uh, meat products, my personal philosophy is if somebody is going to do that, Let's make that a condiment instead of a main course. Let's do it therapeutically instead of with with gluttony. Yeah, I think if if one factors particularly the first quote that you shared, and they say, okay, my goal is to reduce unnecessary suffering and harm to all life, me and other life. And to optimize quality of life for me and all other life. And then how do I make decisions aligned with that? If I can be uh, vibrantly healthy on just plant matter and I have good reason to believe that um, less suffering happens as a result of just eating plant matter than eating plant and animal matter uh, because more evolved complexity in animals than in plants – nervous system, you know, more capacity for 
response also means more capacity for sensing, more capacity for pain, for suffering. And the animal was eating however many plants they were, uh, you know, in terms of the agricultural feed to get there in the first place. So, you know, if, if you bring up the argument about what about the sentience of plants, you've done more plant damage by moving the plants through animals. So, you know, it's a pretty easy argument to make if, if, uh, if one can uh, not eat animal uh, products and do well, then it seems ethically necessary to do so. If one does not know how to eat only plant products and do well, and so where if they only ate plant products, they would be suffering, and they would meaning they'd have uh, less vital health or actual acute health issues and less capacity to do the things that would then enrich quality of life for others, then it would be an ethical issue not to, but that doesn't automatically mean carte blanche, great, eat as much factory farm meat as you want. There is a lack of nuance that I think uh, is pretty common where hardcore vegan is an easy position and I eat meat is an easy position. (laughs) Um, The point of view that says there are times where I – feel that it's therapeutically relevant to increase my heme iron or my uh, animal proteins or whatever, and I'm going to do the least amount of it in the least evolved forms of life, um, you know, from the most humane sourcing I can, is very different than just a carte blanche eight animals. Right. Right. So I'm going to take this opportunity to pivot for the sake of time, and um, we've gone down a few little rabbit holes, which have been cool. And I want to create the container for the rest of this interview to dive into the Qualia product and anything around kind of this idea around neurohacking. Actually, before we dive into the particular product that you helped formulate, which I think is absolutely brilliant and very sophisticated, which is why I wanted, one of the reasons I wanted to bring you on is to share the details of it. Um, As we get into that, can you share with us your interest in quote-unquote neurohacking, as it's popularly called? Yeah, so neurohacking for us uh, really means uh, optimizing neurologic function and optimizing mind-brain interface Capabilities. So we think of biohacking generally meaning uh, any way of increasing function of the biologic system. And, you know, biohacking could really just be synonymous with um, good health care uh, and good well-being. Uh, I think part of why the term hacking has caught on in the hacker ethos is the hacker ethos was a little bit counter-authoritarianism, right? Mm-hmm. So there's much authoritarianism in the medical establishment process that um, because of its inability to address complex illness and the people that have suffered from it while still having, you know, uh, authorities hold a lot of reign on what they think uh, people shouldn't do, right. uh, as well as its inability to, you know, really help people optimize, there's this kind of... Um, the the hacking wasn't like nature is the mainframe and we have to hack it. It's we want to work with nature, but we're we are working um, around establishment. Uh, I think that's one of the reasons that the term caught on. Another idea was that somebody could hack a computer system without understanding all of the computer system. They just had to understand ways of getting in. 
which ended up meaning a lot less information to still have a lot of capability. So uh, I think one of the other ideas in biohacking and consciousness hacking, hacking all those terms, was uh, the, the least amount of input necessary to create meaningful output change. So <laughs> that's when, I, just, I don't mean to interrupt, but that, I'm just glad you said it that way because my pet peeve is about the la- the least amount of effort to get the most amount of output. So I'm glad you phrased it that way. Your pet peeve is thinking that way? No, my pet peeve is other people using the term hacking, like biohacking or business hacking or life hacking as a way to get as a way to put in the least amount of effort to get the most amount of result. And I think you know I, I think Tim Ferriss kind of maybe did more than anybody at first to popularize that idea, productivity hacking, life hacking with the four-hour work week and the idea of, hey, can I automate a lifestyle for myself with uh, you know, not, not as much time and then can I apply that to body and other things? And the idea of the Pareto principle of that there is a sm- relatively small subset of all the things one could do in a space that can lead to much of the results of the space and let's start there. It's a good principle. Now – if there's 20% of the stuff you can do that will lead to 80% of the results, if you really care about the area, you're not happy with 80% of the results. Right. Um, and so, you know, when you think about just increased leverage, right, where less input can create more output, that doesn't necessarily mean you continue to do less input. It might mean you just start getting exponentially more output because you care more and you continue to invest a lot with just higher leverage strategies. Right. Beautiful. So neurohacking, you know, why it's interesting for us, what is interesting for me is when I looked at all of the uh, dynamics in the world that we wanted to affect at a macro level, we looked at um, war and religious differences and violence and biodiversity loss and, you know, et cetera, it, it was pretty easy to see that one of the common denominators across all those issues in different sectors was that they were all being mediated by human behavior. And that in order to change any of them, we had to change human behavior at scale. Mm-hmm. And that all the solutions we needed were going to be brought about by human behavior, or they weren't, right? And so what are all the things that influence human behavior to directly cause harm to indirectly externalize harm, to uh, work on solutions, to work on solutions effectively, right? Like what are all the things that influence those capacities and those predispositions? Well, it's social systems do. Economics and what you incentivize has a huge effect. The environment and the environmental psychology influences have a huge effect. Our psychology, our worldview, our definition of success, definition of self and other has a huge effect. You know, our our trauma and all like that. But our physiology has a huge effect. And that was the part that we wanted to address here. Uh, We're used to thinking of kind of a nature-nurture divide where nature is assumed to mean something like genetics. And uh, it's fairly unchangeable and nurture equals other stuff. But this is, is of course, a very outdated way of thinking about it. Um, Our genetics mostly selected for neuroplasticity. We don't run fast like cheetahs. We don't fly like birds. We don't swim very well like fish. We don't really have many specialist capacities that are physiologically built in, but we can make tools that do any of those things better than specialists, right? We can 
can, with our tools, go faster than cheetahs, fly faster than birds, go deeper underwater than whales, um, etc. The strength of a gorilla is nothing compared to that of a hydraulic press. And so we selected for the capacity to do abstraction and develop tools and extend ourselves to those tools. But that tools, those tools meant we were going to change our environment rapidly, which meant if we had fixed wiring where we were adapted to our evolutionary environment, we would be unadapted to the new worlds that we'd create. So we had to have very little hardwiring so that we could softwire to the new environments we we're creating, which is why we're pretty much useless for the first year of our life compared to a gorilla that can do stuff in the first five minutes, a horse that's up and walking in the first few minutes, is because we're born very neotenous. We have a very long developmental period because rather than have hardwired behaviors, we have uh, radical plasticity for firm wiring, what is going to be adaptive to the environment that we're born into. And then we have continued neuroplasticity throughout life. So basically evolution said only being able to change our behavior through natural selection, through breeding over a long period of time is very slow. So we're evolving a creature that can change its behavior radically just by software updates, mimetics, right, which are mediated by, you know, neural coding and, and you know, neuroplasticity. So genetics, our genetics selected for mimetics. So rather than having genetic predispositions for really good or really shitty behavior, we have genetic predispositions to be mimetically susceptible to whatever our conditioning is. Um, and so mostly we're looking at conditioning, but and, and I'm stating that to say the idea that we have evolutionary biology predispositions that just inexorably suck, I don't believe is well supported. Um, but we can say that physiology uh, does affect patterns of human experience and human behavior, not even so much at the level of genetics, we could get into that, but at the level of just whether or not the physiology is in tune, right? So if hormones are out of balance, life is very different than if they're in balance. Brain chemistry is out of balance, life is very different. And so almost everyone has experienced their physiology being out of balance in ways that affected their psyche, affected their emotions, affected their cognition. And you can kind of think of it as when an instrument is out of tune, you kind of can't play anything on it, no matter if you know how to play well or not, it sounds good. So before we look at upgrading our system, right, making our guitar a better guitar, we just look at getting it in tune first. Right. We see there's a tremendous amount of predisposition for shitty behavior that is actually untuned physiologies. That is neurochemical imbalances, hormonal imbalances, micro probiome imbalances, et cetera, that lead to um, uh, less system resilience, less emotional resilience, less impulse control. Because when you think about the things we care about psychologically, empathy, perspective taking, complex thinking, problem solving, impulse control, et cetera, those are all mediated over certain neural circuits involving certain neurochemistry, and those can be physiologically up or down regulated. So neural hacking was interesting for us to say, how can we take a more complex approach to how we address tuning the organism, complex system science, multifactorial, et cetera, um, so that we can both decrease unnecessary suffering at the human level, increase quality of life at the human level, but also increase the capacity for and predisposition for that human becoming uh, 
an asset on nature's balance sheet rather than a liability. And how does how does Qualia fit into that? Yeah. So Qualia is the first product that we have actually brought to market that's for sale. We have uh, quite a few other products, both additional versions of Qualia and completely different products with different goals that are um, in various phases of development and will come out uh, soon. Uh, the reason why we started with Qualia is, uh, one, it was it's a familiar delivery mechanism. Taking pills is much more familiar to people uh, than strapping on EEG units or using transcranial stimulation. So there's a low barrier to entry in terms of familiarity. There's also a low barrier to entry in terms of it takes it doesn't take very much will. There's not much behavioral uh, involved in taking a pill, and that it has the capacity to not only have the effect that it has, but it has the effect of increasing one's capacity to do the other things that are harder to do because of its effect on uh, motivational chemistry. And so uh, those were all reasons why we saw it as a, as a meaningful starting place. Um, and then the desire to be productive is high for everyone. The demand is high from a you know, just your life and dealing with shit and economics point of view and from the point of view of if you're tuned into the world scenario and you realize how much needs to happen, there's a major demand to be, you know, creative and, uh, and productive in, in shifting things. Uh, while we have more challenges to attention span from more distractions, and so we see increased you know, maybe not in your audience, but we in, in wide audiences, increased Adderall use, increased smart drink, five-hour energy, et cetera. Your group is probably doing adaptogens. Um, but uh, we wanted to see if we could make something that had a much wider set of positive effects than those single-molecule solutions had and that had lastingly positive rather than lastingly negative effects because – you know, single molecule pharmacological, usually psychostimulants will have an effect, but it's usually quite narrow, right? Your Adderall is going to affect presynaptic dopamine increase. It's going to increase focus and concentration and drive, but it's going to decrease uh, task switching, working memory, and oftentimes empathy. Um, and then it's going to override your and imbalance your own endogenous dopamine regulatory system, which leads to down regulation independence. We wanted to see, could we increase concentration and focus so you could be highly focused while increasing task switching so you could move between tasks as needed better simultaneously while increasing long-term memory, short-term memory, working memory, speed of memory, and increasing analytic capability and synthetic capability simultaneously, etc., so how do we increase the capacity of all of those meaningful subjective experiences and cognitive uh, capacities that go into creative, productive flow states where, where uh, you know, cognition is uh, fully available, accessible? And um, that's started by just kind of modeling what are all the capacities and states that are desired, and then we model what it, what are the underlying physiologic mechanisms that mediate each of those? 
what are the chemistries that affect those mechanisms, and then what are the chemistries that are generally well-tolerated, whose effect on other systems is also positive, and where we get positive synergies between the chemistries, and then that was the beginning of our formulation process, and then you know, many, many cycles of iteration to get to where it is. What what are what are some of the the effects that you've seen across the board with people? I mean, I could easily give my experience, but I'm I'm about a month into it right now, and um, I'm just curious from your your perspective as the core formulator and also receiving testimonials from other people and also doing it yourself. I'm curious, like what what across the board do you see as the most common um, enhancements or effects? So first, uh, I will say for this podcast, you know, our necessary medical disclaimer. Um, of course. That we are not uh, able to prescribe, treat, diagnose anything. Quality shouldn't be used for any medical conditions. If you have medical conditions, psycho- psychiatric conditions, go to your healthcare professional. And that neither Ronnie or his company or Neurohacker, et cetera, should be taken for medical advice. All of that's a given. And we can't make any claims because we haven't done uh, the kind of uh, FDA approval uh, trials that are necessary to be able to make claims. So I can't say quality does anything. Um, I can tell you what we intended, and I can tell you things that people have reported. So as far as uh, people have reported, um, increased total working memory, how many things they can simultaneously hold and actually make good sense of, Mm -hmm. Uh, increased rate of memory, their verbal fluency going up. So rather than the word on the tip of their tongue and they feel like they can't um, catch it, that uh, they actually have, you know, meaningfully increased um, verbal fluency and flow, uh, increased creativity, epiphany, insight, uh, increased pattern recognition, and also kind of error recognition. Um, You know, all of those things we've heard uh, a lot uh, increased emotional resilience and drive both for the things that they really love, right? Things that people are motivated to do where they can actually stay on task for a much longer period of time. And even in the face of setbacks, continue to feel good and continue, but also things that people would normally procrastinate actually feeling like they can focus on and get done without being bothered by them. So we didn't expect that. We've had so many people, right? Saying, that they actually did their taxes and cleaned their desk and finished their papers <laughs> because rather than it uh, being an odious process, they were able to just focus and, and not have any drama about it, feel good about it. Uh, decreased internal sense of drama was also one of the things that has been mm. a lot, which doesn't mean emotional blunting. People still said they you know, would cry at inspiring things and feel happy and grateful and feel sad when there was something real to feel sad about, but they were making up less stories because they were just thinking there. So the bullshit thinking that led to a bunch of emotional reactions about what isn't real decreased. Um, And uh, increased vividness of dreams, lucid dreams. Now, there's a lot of people that have claimed things for their medical conditions. People with, you know, many interesting medical conditions have said that their conditions were meaningfully decreased or gone but again that's way outside of the scope of anything we're allowed to talk about um and you know it's important to say we didn't make qualia to uh 
cure conditions. We did make it for well people who are seeking optimization where this would have a uh, wider scope of optimization than other solutions that were available and with less long-term negatives and hopefully even long-term positives. And for people who have been using uh, the product for a long time and then used it and stopped taking it for a while and tracked their baseline, the report of long-term positives has continued. That is a really important distinction, isn't it? Because typically in a supplement, um, it is it is something that we have to continue to take in order to derive the effects. However, in something like this, the the I guess the intention or maybe just the side effect that has been noticed is that even when somebody stops taking it, their baseline resilience or their baseline cognition elevates to a new level where they don't have to keep taking it, yet they're better off for taking it. Yeah, and again, we don't have the kind of research where we can quantify that yet, though we're in the early stages of gathering it, um, and we, we will have that you know, in the not-too-distant future, we're really excited about it. But um, yeah, in a dynamic system where you continue to have uh, lots of system inputs, we don't expect uh, any effect to be um, you know, permanent, just like exercise isn't meditation, isn't someone can meditate for a bunch of years, and if they stop, they can start getting more stressed out. But as much of an effect as if someone has exercised, they have really good fitness, yeah. a few months later, they're still in different shape than someone who didn't exercise. We were looking for a similar effect to that, which is if you have an upregulated system, uh, there should be continuance of that upregulation until there is you know, too much that is uh, uh, downregulating it and it doesn't have continued support. Right. Through a couple mechanisms, our intention was that if people were – operating at increased efficiency continuously over a long period of time that there would be actual new rewiring, neuroplastic rewiring mm-hmm. to that state as baseline. And that we have a lot of chemistry that's focused on supporting endogenous processes of neurogenesis and synaptogenesis, so neural structuring processes. So you don't feel those right away. The things that you feel right away are things that are affecting neurotransmission. But for longer-term effects – we looked at specifically chemicals that support development of new synaptic structures, new, new you know, neurite formation, and new progenitor stem cell neuron formation differentiation so that those endogenous processes could happen in an upregulated fashion. Mm. And that's where you could get not just chemical changes but structural changes, where those structural changes uh, you know, would have the capacity to be more enduring. Yeah, there's a my my brain just went in a whole bunch of different directions. Um, however, we don't have time for that, do we? So, whew, okay. So, with all that said, and I think that's an I think we've already taken a huge we've taken everybody on a few different rabbit holes into some very um some very in depth territory, and especially this last part. And I just want to I just want to maybe add to this and and if and if anybody if anything went over anyone's head i really invite everybody to continue to research maybe continue to listen to this interview and listen to some of daniel's other interviews and content free content on youtube because this man is obviously what i would call a polymath which is um one of my colleagues john d martini who i had on the show recently 
he's obviously one, and it's basically somebody who has gained a certain level of mastery in multiple disciplines, and um, which is one of the reasons not only you fascinate me so much, because that's something I'm trying to optimize within myself, because I have so many interests, but it's just something that I have a great deal of respect for, because I know the type of work and de- devotion to your craft it takes to really to really weed through all the distinctions and nuances to be able to critically think and extrapolate information the way that you do. So for everyone listening, um, you just continue to investigate these things. And I really encourage everybody to actually go to your website, Daniel, which I'll let you tell everybody about, which has a lot more broken down research and information on the concepts that you're talking about and on the quality of product. What is that website? Neurohacker.com. Cool. So they can go to neurohacker.com. I believe that you guys also have a monthly subscription for people that want to test it over a longer term. You do. Cool. And uh, is there any, any more information or anything you'd love to leave the audience off with at this point? Uh, just that it was a, a delight and honor to uh, be here with you, and I appreciate the work you are doing and uh, sharing good resources with people, educating people, and I'm happy about uh, the friendship and mm. to continue and evolve it. And um, if there are future topics that are interesting that we can share about, I'd be very happy to. Absolutely. Well, I'm glad you said that because I got a whole bunch of them for you, and I would love to have you back on the show whenever you'd like to be on. Sounds great. Okay, awesome. Thank you, my friends. Yeah, thank you so much for joining me. And thank all of you, as always, for tuning in to, at this point, the Holistic Health and Human Potential Show. I am your host, Ronnie Landis. And this has been another phenomenal episode with a phenomenal guest. I hope you guys appreciated it. And I hope you take at least one, two, or three key nuggets of insight that will help you really push the boundaries of your own human potential. Thank you so much for joining us.